You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Because nope. I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th, hosted by Kevin Hart. The seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. What's up, guys? Welcome back to Never Graduate, the podcast where we don't just talk college sports, we live college sports. I am your host, Tyler Graves, and today we are kicking off week three of the podcast. Thank you all for being here today, and a special thank you to all of you who have come back for more. I have to admit, I'm still just overwhelmed with the early reception for this podcast. Like I said last week, when you start a brand new podcast from scratch and you don't really have some major media network behind you publicizing it and pushing it for you, you never really know what to expect. I've been running another podcast for the last eight years, and that was a grind to get that one off the ground and get that thing going, but we have been fortunate enough to watch that podcast grow beyond our wildest dreams over the past eight years. But you honestly never know. I mean, even with our first podcast, the first couple of years, I didn't know, man. The first couple of weeks, months, especially, like, oh my God, is anyone listening out there? So, it's always kind of an adventure and you never really know what to expect when you're launching a new podcast. So thank you guys for checking in, giving it a shot, and just generally supporting this new endeavor. So I appreciate you guys sincerely. We are up to actually 39 five-star ratings on Apple Podcasts right now. So when I'm talking about like it exceeding my expectations over the first two weeks, that's what I'm talking about. I didn't even know if we'd have like two or three five-star ratings. We got 39 right now, which I know in the grand scheme of the podcast universe, that's small potatoes. I get that. But hey, you know, we're just launching a brand new podcast. I feel really good about that. So thank you. Again, thank you guys for that. Like honestly, there's three things that you can do to help this podcast grow more than anything. So if you enjoy this podcast, if you like what you hear, if you want me to be able to keep bringing you this content, there's three general things that I don't think are too taxing on you guys out there listening, but would go a long way in helping this podcast grow. So number one, just listening, just being here like you are right now, listening to the podcast, coming back for more consistently week after week. That's number one, obviously. And then those five-star ratings and reviews, you guys would be surprised how much that actually helps because that helps attract new listeners. A lot of you, when you first came across this podcast, you saw me on social media or you heard someone talk about the podcast, someone told you to check it out, you probably went to Apple Podcasts or Spotify 
looked up the reviews to see if it was worth your time. And you might have said, oh, you know what? It looks pretty good. Let's give it a shot. So it helps. And a lot of you can probably attest to that yourself. And then just spreading the word is another huge way to help the podcast. Tell your friends, tell your family, tell your coworkers, anyone, everyone that you think would be interested in a hardcore college football podcast. Spreading the word is also a huge help. But again, the bottom line is, as I think I've said 14 times by now, I'll say it one more. What the heck? I appreciate you guys. Thank you, thank you, thank you for being here and supporting this podcast. And I am excited about today's show because we aren't talking storylines. We aren't talking NIL. We aren't talking even like breakout players, which I think is fun, but we're not even talking that. We're not talking power rankings, which again, I think is fun, but we're not even doing that. We are talking actual college football games on the show today. Is it a little too early? Some might say, I say, hell no, it's never too early to start talking about college football games. So over the next couple of weeks, I'm going to go down the 2022 college football calendar month by month, week by week, and give you what I think are the most important games from each week throughout the 2022 season. Notice what I said there, most important important games, not the biggest games necessarily. Some of these games that I'm going to identify for you might well be the biggest games in that particular week. There can absolutely be some crossover, but there are going to be some of these games that when I bring them up, you might be saying like, Tyler, aren't there bigger games that weekend? Maybe that's the case, but I'm looking at this from a little bit of a different perspective. What are the most important games? And you can define that however you will. You can define that in a number of different ways. But as the host of this podcast, who does have their microphone sitting in front of me right now, I'm going to define most important as the games that I believe are going to have biggest impacts on the outcome of conference races and the college football playoff picture. That's what I'm defining as most important. And again, some of these games will be like the biggest games on that week, sure, but some of them, maybe not as much. So just putting that out there as a little caveat before we dig in here. I didn't want there to be any sort of confusion. So yeah, while everyone else is talking about what coach said what at SEC Media Days, which I don't know about you guys, but for me personally, that bores the holy hell out of me. And that is one of the reasons that I started this podcast. I think far too many podcasts focus their attention on all those storylines and what the coaches say, and they want to get interviews with all the different coaches out there, which I mean, some people like, that's great, but that never really does much for me. So I wanted to create a podcast for fans like me and What do fans like me want? What do I want to hear people talk about? I want to hear people talk about actual on-the-field football. So that is what I'm going to do today, and that is what has me excited about this episode. And oh yeah, how did I forget this? People seem to really enjoy the blind college football resume segment that I did. I think I did that week one, maybe the second or third episode of this podcast. People seem to like that, so I'm bringing it back again today. So we'll get to that after we run through the most important September games of the 2022 college football season. And we're going to kick things off week one. Now, guys, I got to be honest with you. I gave myself a headache trying to pick the most important game of week one. I went back and forth with this. Initially, I started off with Utah at Florida but I talked myself out of that one. And then I had Georgia versus Oregon in the Chick-fil-A kickoff classic for a minute. 
because I thought maybe you could apply the rationale that I had for Utah versus Florida as the most important game of week one to this game. But I kept thinking about it. I kept wrestling with it. And then I changed my mind again. I was like, you know what? It's got to be Ohio State Notre Dame, right? Like that's the only match between two legit playoff contenders in my estimation in week one. So it's got to be that one, right? I mean, Ohio State, Notre Dame, that's clearly the biggest game of week one from like an eyeballs and national hype standpoint. The number of people that are going to actually watch that game, I mean, college game day is going there. They've already announced that over a month ago. So from like that standpoint, what's the biggest game? I think Ohio State, Notre Dame clearly is the biggest game of week one. So I thought I had settled on that one, but then I started to rethink that and question myself again. So I put it out to you guys on social media and let me pull it up right now. As of right now, it's pretty tight between Georgia and Oregon and Atlanta and Notre Dame at Ohio State. Got 47% of you are saying Georgia versus Oregon and then 41% of you are saying Notre Dame at Ohio State. Only 12% of you guys out there are saying Utah at Florida. So at least from this small sample size here, it seems like a lot of you are going to disagree with me and that's okay. I welcome that. I invite that. As I've said a couple of times through the first several episodes of this podcast, I'm going to tell you guys what I think. You might not always agree with it and that's okay, but what I'm going to do is I'm always going to tell you why I think that. I'm going to support it. I'm going to back it up. You might not like my rationale, but I'm going to give you reasoning for that. And you guys are going to disagree with me here, at least according to this Twitter poll that I put out there in the Twitter sphere earlier today. But I'm going to go back to my initial thought, my initial reaction here. And I'm picking Utah at Florida as the most important game of week one. I know the other two options that I was considering are certainly higher profile games, more people are going to watch those games. There's going to be more hype leading up to those games on the national scene. But again, in terms of importance, I'm going with Utah at Florida. Here's why, okay? I know you're going to disagree with me, but hear me out here. I believe Utah is the best team in the Pac-12. I also think they are the most likely team in the Pac-12 to make the college ball playoff in 2022. Utah was awesome last year, guys but they had a very poor early season showing in the non-conference and that removed them from playoff contention less than a month into the season. They lost to BYU and they lost to San Diego State within the first three weeks of the season. So less than a month into the season, Utah was completely out of the playoff picture. It did not even remotely matter what they did in the Pac-12 and they were fantastic in the Pac-12. They lost one game the rest of the way, ended up nine and three in the regular season, They won the Pac-12, beat Oregon twice late in the season, but they were never in the playoff conversation. They weren't even in the periphery of the playoff conversation. Why? Because of their poor showing in the non-conference in the first month of the season. And then you have to just think about the reputation of the Pac-12 in general. The Pac-12 might be disintegrating in front of our very eyes right now. It might or might not be. We'll see how that plays out. Probably not in the immediate future, but give it 10 years or so when the grant of rights is up and it's probably going to fall apart. But regardless of what happens in the future, think about where the Pac-12 sits in the national college football consciousness. No one outside of Pac-12 country and really probably not that many people within Pac-12 country respect that conference, at least not when it comes to college football. Country club sports, they'll murder you, but college football, 
yeah, different story. The perception is clearly just that it is an inferior football conference, that it is by far the worst Power 5 conference there is. And sometimes perception might not be reality, but in this case, perception really is reality when it comes to the Pac-12 and its football success. Because if you look at the recent history of the Pac-12 when it comes to the Coswell playoff, or should I say their lack of history in the Coswell playoff, they had a representative in the very first Coswell playoff in 2014. Oregon was there. They made it the national championship game, right? Fell short, but they made it there. And then in 2016, Washington had a fantastic season, and they earned the right to get smacked around by Alabama and Atlanta in the Peach Bowl. But in the five years since, a Pac-12 team, not only has there not been a Pac-12 team that's made the college football playoff, there's really not been a Pac-12 team that sniffed the college football playoff that was really even in the conversation. So let's do some simple math here. Math is not my thing, but I can do some basic math. So we've had eight years of the college football playoff now going back to 2014. So eight years, four teams per year, that makes 32 teams that have found themselves in the college football playoff over the last eight years. Oregon, Washington, the only two teams who have found their way to the playoff once each, which makes two of the 32 teams that have made up the Coswell playoff to this point have been from the Pac-12, which comes out to a whopping 6% of the teams in the Coswell playoff through its first eight years of existence have come from the Pac-12. Feel free to double check my math there, two out of 32. I did it about six or seven times myself just to make sure I wasn't wrong there, but it's 6%, guys, 6 percent of the college football playoff teams have come from the Pac-12. That's it. So why is that? Well, man, that's a whole episode in its own. Obviously, there haven't been teams that are good enough to be in the college football playoff conversation, and there's many reasons for that. There's not as much buy-in and, and investment within the fan bases, which means that it's harder to attract recruits because who wants to play in a bunch of half-empty stadiums where college football is kind of an afterthought? It also severely hurts them when it comes to the television contracts because they simply don't have the eyeballs that they can go sell to these TV networks like the SEC and the Big Ten do. I mean, the SEC slogan, it just means more. I know if you live outside SEC country, that makes you roll your eyes. It's kind of vomit-inducing. I get that, but it's reality. It just means more. Why does the SEC make so much money when it comes to their TV contracts? Why do they keep getting these top recruits? Well, there's a lot of football players in the Southeast, of course. You know, population demographics have changed over time. That's a major part of it. But the fan bases just care. It is a big freaking deal in the South. It's big-time college football. You are a big man on campus if you go to really any SEC school absent Vanderbilt. But you can't say that for the Pac-12. And television networks know that. They know there's not as many people that want to watch their product. That's why they can never get the Pac-12 network off the ground because no one was demanding it. I mean, I, I live in Georgia. So I remember when the SEC network was first being launched and I was freaking out because I was like, oh my God, like my TV provider isn't offering it right now. Like, is this going to happen? I have to have this before week one. I cannot go into this new college football season without the SEC network. So people like me and all the other people in the Southeast who care and like live and breathe college football, they demanded. It was a requirement that all of our TV providers offer the SEC network or we were changing. That's what I was telling my providers. Like, I don't care what kind of 
buyout I have to pay. I am changing TV providers if you do not offer the ACC network. No one was doing that for the Pac-12. So the Pac-12 is kind of hamstrung there. So there's a lot of reasons why the Pac-12 has had such difficulty making the college football playoff. But at least part of it is the fact that Pac-12 gets zero national respect. I mean, zero national respect. Certainly there's regional bias in that to a degree. That's part of it. But really, it's mostly of their own doing because when they've had opportunities in the non-conference, in big-time moments, they have face-planted more often than not. And yes, I know there are isolated games here and there where the Pac-12 has won some of these non-con matchups. Like, Oregon went to Ohio State and upset the Buckeyes in the horseshoe last season. Like, those games have happened, but those are the exception. Those are few and far between. I mean, let's just take last year, for example. Sure, Oregon went in, beat Ohio State. That was a fantastic win for the Ducks. It was a fantastic win for the Pac-12. But that was really the lone bright spot for the Pac-12 in non-conference play last year. Versus FBS opponents last year, the non-conference, the Pac-12 was 9-14, 39% win percentage. In fact, BYU had as many wins, three wins, against the Pac-12 last year as the Pac-12 had against the entire Power 5 combined. The Pac-12 went 3-9 and nine against Power 5 non-conference teams last year, guys. That's 25%. Compare that to the Big 10 that went 9-5 and five versus Power 5 teams. The Big 12 that went 4-3 and three versus Power 5 teams in the non-conference. The ACC wasn't great either. The ACC was 3-8 versus Power 5 teams, but at least they were over 500 against FBS teams. They were 13-11 against FBS teams. And then you've got the SEC, of course, which was way up there with a 22-5 record against FBS non-conference opponents, and then a 6-4 record against Power 5 non-conference opponents. With some high-profile wins thrown in there, Georgia over Clemson, obviously, in Week 1, Alabama over Miami, big. Arkansas over Texas, big. But the bottom line is the Pac-12 gets no respect, largely because the Pac-12 doesn't deserve that national respect. So let's bring this back to this game between the Utes and the Gators week one in Gainesville. Why did I kind of go off on this Pac-12 tangent? I did that because it helps illuminate why I think this game is so important, especially for Utah, but not just Utah, the Pac-12 in general. What I believe is that for a team from the Pac-12 to make the Coswell playoff, again, only 6% of Coswell playoff teams have come from the Pac-12. For that to change, for one of these teams like Utah from the Pac-12 to make the playoff in 2022, they have got to win games like this. And I know this is a transition year for Florida. I know there's not high expectations for Florida nationally right now. And I think if your average Florida fan down in Gainesville or wherever they live was being honest with you, they would say, yeah, like we'd probably be happy with seven and five, eight and four this year, and you're one a billion apier. So there's not the high expectations this year, but Florida is still an SEC team. Florida has won multiple national titles over the last 20 years. Therefore, that still makes them a brand name. Even though they haven't had a ton of success recently outside of the COVID year, they're still a brand name when it comes to the college football world. This game for Utah is on the road in a hostile environment against a brand name SEC program. Winning this game will get the attention of fans across the country. Now, will it win all the fans nationally over to the Pac-12 side? So you know what, man? We had it wrong the whole time on the Pac-12. This is a fantastic conference. No, it's not going to do that. But it's at least going to keep that 
narrative from continuing to build. If a team like Utah will go in and win a game like this on the road in Gainesville against a brand name SEC opponent, but who really cares about the fans? They aren't the ones really driving the choices of who makes the college football playoff. I know they like to think that they do. I know we like to think that we do, but we don't really have any say in this. But more than that, it's going to catch the attention of the people who are choosing those college football playoff teams, the college football playoff committee itself. So winning this game will be a major boost to the resume for Utah come December when we're sitting down there on Selection Sunday and the college football playoff committee is making their final go-around trying to pick these four teams. Now, Utah is going to have to go the rest of the way and win a lot of football games. There's no doubt about that. But winning this game week one against Florida will set them up and keep them alive, keep the hope of a college football playoff berth alive. Whereas losing it, I honestly believe if Utah loses this game, they are going to have a very hard time making the college football playoff. Like Honestly, even if Utah runs the table after losing to Florida, if they do indeed end up losing to Florida, even if they run the table through the rest of the non-conference slate and through the Pac-12 and win the Pac-12 conference and, be, and become a 12-1 conference champion with a week one loss on the road to Florida, I'm not sure they're going to be able to make the playoffs even if that is what ends up transpiring. Because think about this. Like, what if Oregon loses to Georgia? So let's say Oregon loses to Georgia, which right now, I mean, Georgia's a seven, at least a 17-point favorite depending on what sports book you look at. Some, some places have it up to 18 and a half. So, look, Oregon, could they win? Sure, I guess possibly. But right now, Georgia's the heavy betting favorite in that game. So if Oregon loses to Georgia, Utah loses to Florida, and let's say USC loses to Notre Dame late in the season. Let's say Washington loses at home to Michigan State and the conference face plants all over again in the non-conference, there's not going to be enough quality win opportunities for them like to rack up those wins unless teams in other conferences falter. You see this in college basketball a lot where RPI, is, it's not so much RPI anymore. It's the net ranking in quad one and quad two wins, right? That's really what they're looking at now more than RPI. RPI doesn't really factor in the conversation with the college basketball tournament committee with that selection committee but if you're one of those conferences that's not a power conference it's really difficult for you to get the wins and build your resume once you get in a conference play which is where you play the majority of your games because you don't have those quad one and quad two teams in your conference you're not playing them night in night out whereas if you play in the big 10 or the acc or the sec last or the big 12 you get tons of opportunities week in and week out to get those quad one wins, to get those really high net wins. That's going to help your resume out when it comes selection time. And that's what would happen to a team like Utah if the Pac-12 as a whole just face plants in the non-conference again, which if you look at it on the surface, there's a really good chance Oregon loses to Georgia. There's a really good chance that USC loses to Notre Dame. That could be a toss-up game, but look, they could certainly lose that game. Washington at home against Michigan State. I mean, Michigan State was better last year. It's a whole new year. I get that. Caleb DeBoer coming into Washington. We'll see. But if they lose those games... Where are the quality win opportunities for Utah to build that college football playoff resume? So let me give you some examples here. I mean, there's so many different ways this could go. We don't know. The season hasn't even kicked off yet. So we don't know what the scenario is going to be. But let me just throw some random ones at you here. Let's say Ohio State is a undefeated Big Ten champion. Let's say Bama is the undefeated SEC champion. Both those teams are in automatically, right? And let's say Georgia goes undefeated through the regular season, but they lose a, a close-ish game to Alabama in Atlanta for the SEC title game. Georgia's 12-1, and and they beat Florida by three or four touchdowns. Is the committee really going to take a 12-1 and Utah team 
that sure they they went undefeated through the Pac-12, they won the Pac-12 title, so they, they say that you know they really like to use the the conference titles as a, as a tiebreaker. But this team, let's say they lose to Florida, whereas Georgia beat Florida convincingly, went through an SEC schedule, beat Oregon in Week One in a non-conference game, and just had the misfortune of playing Alabama in the SEC championship game. Are you really? going to put that Utah team in over Georgia in that scenario? Maybe, maybe. I don't know, but that's certainly not a done deal. You know what would make it a done deal for Utah? If they beat Florida week one. What if in that same scenario, there is a one-loss Big 12 champion? What if Texas goes 12-1 with that one loss being to Bama? Or let's say Oklahoma goes 12-1. What if A&M and Georgia are sitting there with one loss each at the end of the season, both losing to Alabama, and they both beat Florida in the regular season. Are, is the playoff committee really going to choose Utah over AM and Georgia just because AM and Georgia had to play Alabama and Utah didn't? When they both beat Florida, they both beat a common opponent that Utah had? I certainly would not want to take my chances if I'm Utah, at least if you go off past history with the Pac-12 and the cultural playoff committee. And I know some of you are probably sitting there right now and you're going back to me picking Utah at Florida as the most important game of week one. You're saying, well, dude, can't you say the same thing about Oregon and Georgia? Doesn't the same logic apply? I would argue no. In my opinion, it does not. And here's why. I don't believe that Oregon is a true playoff contender this year. I do believe that Utah is. For Oregon, I think they're a good team. They're a talented team. But they're, in my opinion in the preseason at least, before we've seen these teams out there on the field, I think there's too much turnover with the Oregon roster. I think they lost too many difference makers from last year's team. You're talking about Kayvon Thibodeau, you're talking about Travis Dye, you're talking about Devin Williams. Anthony Brown, was he a difference maker? Probably not, but he was their starting quarterback. They're losing a lot of those playmakers, those difference makers from last year. And on top of that, I think they're too green and inexperienced in the coaching staff. I'm a big believer in Dan Lanning. I have a ton of respect for him as a head coach. I believe that he will get Oregon on track. I think he's going to be a fantastic head coach. I mean, he's learned from the best. He's learned from Kirby Smart, Nick Saban, been around Mike Norvell as well. I truly believe in Dan Lanning. I just don't see it in year one with that roster. And really, probably more than anything, I just don't think that Oregon has the answer at quarterback. If it's Bo Nix, I have seen absolutely nothing from him through his first three years in college to suggest that he is a difference maker at the quarterback position. Great talent, great athlete, but he just has not figured out how to actually play that position. Could he figure it out this year? Yeah, anything's possible. It's not crazy, I guess, but it's kind of crazy because we haven't seen anything that would suggest he's able to do that through this point in his career for him just to figure it out all in one year moving across the country. I just have a hard time believing that. I'm going to have to see that before I believe it. With Cam Rising, I have proof. I have proof of concept that he can be that guy. So look, I mean, if Oregon finds a way to beat Georgia, then sure, yes, that game will end up being more important more than likely. But I just don't see that right now. I do think that game will be closer than what the spread is saying right now. Like when you see it on some sports book at 18 and a half, personally, I think that's too much. I think that's too many points. I would take Oregon against the spread right now. I've got some time to think about this a little bit and digest it more. But right now, like my gut reaction, especially with the the kind of the unknown of what Dan Lanning is going to do as a head coach, the uncertainty there with what they're going to run offensively with Kenny Dillingham coming over, never really have called plays before. I think it's just a tough prep 
for Georgia in this game, especially with Dan Lanning knowing so much about how Georgia operates, how Todd Munkin's offense operates, what he likes to do, what George likes to do defensively. I think there's just some intrigue in that game that will make it potentially a little bit closer than probably it should be, honestly, based on talent, but I still do not see Oregon winning that football game. I just personally see Utah as more of a legitimate playoff contender, and if they can go on the road and beat Florida in a game where the spread is less than two points, it will give their playoff candidacy a shot in the arm and maybe even give them some margin for error in the Pac-12 because they do have some potential pitfalls in the Pac-12. They got to play USC and get them at home, which is great, but they have to go to UCLA, which I think they should win, but still a tricky spot going to Oregon. I think Utah's better. We saw that twice last year, but it's a new year and it's still a tricky spot going to Autzen Stadium. So there are some potential slip-up spots in the Pac-12. Winning this game against Florida gives them maybe a little bit of a margin for error in the Pac-12. They can, they can maybe drop a game, still in the Pac-12, beat Florida, and still put themselves in pretty good position to make the Cottrell playoff. Now, as for how I seeing this individual game playing out in Gainesville, this is a put your money where your mouth is game for me. I've already got money on Utah to win this game. I actually got them as a one-point underdog back in May, so I'm feeling pretty good about that. I feel very confident Utah is going to win this game. Billy Napier is, I think, a good coach. I think Billy Napier is probably going to do a good job at Florida, but he's still very much in the early stages of establishing his culture there in Gainesville. And let's be honest, guys, I'm not going to try to call anyone by name, but if you pay attention to the Florida the past couple years, and, and this probably had more to do with Dan Mullen than anything, but there's a lot of work to do in that locker room. And the culture is going to be a work in progress for Napier throughout the first year or two. I mean, even Kirby Smart at Georgia, you know, first year, 2016, there were some bumps in the road. He had to establish his culture. And it wasn't completely smooth sailing. And I don't expect it to be that way for Billy Napier this year. And if you look at the matchup here, guys, Florida, I know it's a new year. I know it's a new coaching staff. So you got to factor that in as well. But Last year, they got pushed around in the run game. They were not good up front. They were undisciplined. They weren't strong at the point of attack. They weren't particularly athletic outside of maybe Gervon Dexter up front, really in that front seven. So there were some issues with them. And I don't really think they've necessarily addressed those. Dexter will probably be better now. I do expect to see a pretty good jump from him. But if you look at that defensive front seven outside of Dexter, I mean, who really scares you? I mean, Ventrell Miller, I hear people talk about him at inside linebacker. Come on, guys. Like, that's not a difference maker. He's slow. He's unathletic. Amari Bernie, I mean, right now, they're giving him a legitimate look to play inside linebacker. He's bounced back and forth between inside linebacker, star. He's moved all over the place. And he hasn't really found a home to this point really anywhere because he's not really all that good. And I just think that's a really bad matchup for Florida against a Utah team that knows who they are. Their identity is firmly established. They are going to run the football down your throat and work play action off that down the field. In fact, Utah is built very much like Georgia, at least offensively and really defensively too. They want to play really good defense, run the football, hit play action shots off that. I mean, I guess in some ways, I know Utah fans would take this as a slight. I don't intend it to be that way, but they're kind of a poor man's Georgia because they just don't have the talent that Georgia has, but they're built the way that Georgia is. They try to basically take on that same identity and they are not screwing around at quarterback this year. That is what killed Utah in the non-conference last year. They tried to play Charlie Brewer, the transfer from Baylor. That did not work out. He left the team shortly. 
uh, after the start of the season when things kind of started to go sideways a little bit and they're starting to get Cam Rising some looks. And Cam Rising took over and really helped turn that season around for Utah. They're not screwing around this year. It is Cam Rising's team. It has been his team the entire offseason. Everyone knows that. And just like Stetson Bennett for Georgia this year, I expect to see a, a better version of Stetson Bennett, even though he was good last year, because this is the first year he's going to go into the season being the guy for the entire offseason, getting all those number one reps. Same thing is true for Cam Rising. I think Cam Rising, who was really good last year, is going to have an even better year this year for the Utah Utes. So really what I expect to happen in this game is I expect Utah to go down into Gainesville, punch Florida in the mouth, run all over them. I think they're tight ends. I mean, they have fantastic tight ends. Brant Keithy, Don Kincaid. I think they are going to be matchup problems for Florida, for Ventrell Miller at linebacker, for Amari Bernie, for Trey Dean in the play action game. Guys, Trey Dean at safety is a guy that you can absolutely pick on in the play action game, really just in coverage in general. I think those tight ends are going to be a problem for them in pass coverage. I don't think Florida's going to have an answer to stop Tavion Thomas and that Utah physical rushing attack. The X factor, if Florida doesn't have any hope, is Anthony Richardson. If Anthony Richardson is ready to be the guy that Florida fans are hoping that he can be, then all bets are off. But we did not see that from him last year, not at least not consistently. We saw it in very small flashes here and there. You can see the talent, but he's still got a ways to go as a passer and just understanding and really feeling comfortable in how to lead an offense. Now, maybe through this offseason, he can become that guy. Maybe. But again, I've got to see it to believe it because we did not see that from him last year. Right now, there are far more sure things on Utah's side than there are Florida's. Nothing's ever a sure thing when it comes to college football betting, but Utah is far more of a sure bet in this game than Florida is. And there's a lot more reasons to believe in the Utes than there is in the Gators, in my opinion, heading into this week one matchup. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. All right, I know I went long on that first game between Utah and Florida because I really want to defend myself there because I know most of you are going to disagree with me, at least if my Twitter poll is any indication. So I wanted to just kind of lay out my thoughts in detail there and give you some real good hardcore justification for why I think that is the most important game of week one. Not the biggest game, not the highest profile game, but the most important game 
of the opening weekends. But let's move on to week number two. This one was obvious for me. I did not have to do any hard thing here. I did not have to put a poll on Twitter out there for you guys to vote on. This one was obvious from first glance. You just scroll through the schedule and you say, oh yeah, obviously it is Bama at Texas. Now, does anyone really expect Texas to win this football game? No, that's not what I'm saying here. Okay, I'm not calling for the upset right now. We'll do it. We'll do an upset alert episode as we get a little bit closer to the season. Give me a couple of weeks, and we'll do that episode. We'll have a lot of fun with that. That's not what this episode is. But to me, obviously, Bama at Texas is not only the most important. This is one of those weeks where the most important game and the biggest game of the week are clearly the same game. It is Alabama at Texas. There's a couple of honorable mention games here. I guess you could say Houston at Texas Tech. I think that's interesting. I know that's not going to be a high profile game. I think Houston has a chance to run the table in the regular season and do what Cincinnati did last year and not only go undefeated in the regular season, but also win the American Athletic Conference. I don't know if they're going to have the out-of-conference wins to make a run to the college football playoff and get the attention of the playoff committee the way that Cincinnati did with that win at Notre Dame. But the best opportunity for that for Houston is taking on the Red Raiders on the road in Lubbock. Will that be enough if they're able to win that game? I don't know, but that's their best chance. Houston's got to win that game if they want to have any hope to make the college football playoff. And then I think Baylor at BYU is a sneaky non-conference game. Baylor, I think, has a chance to win the Big 12 again, go back-to-back. Maybe. We'll see. I don't think they should be the favorite, but they're certainly in the conversation. BYU has a ton returning, not just on offense, but on defense as well. I think they're number two in the country when it comes to returning production, according to Bill Connolly, which doesn't necessarily always mean everything, but it doesn't necessarily mean nothing either. I think BYU was, they were a very good team last year. They were a 10-win team last year. They have a ton returning, especially on defense. I think that's a really interesting matchup. I don't expect either team to really be in the college football playoff picture. I don't think either team is quite at that level from a talent standpoint. And BYU really just has a brutal schedule. But if they can get this win at home against Baylor, I mean, that certainly keeps their hopes alive. If Baylor can win on the road at BYU, which is a tough game for them, that could at least keep their hopes alive. It's not out of the question they can make a run to the playoff. I just don't see them in that vein this year, losing their top two running backs, losing Thornton at wide receiver. I know they made the change at quarterback to Shapin, who I actually thought was better than Bohannon last year when he was given opportunities late in the season. And clearly the Baylor coaches agree with me because they've already named him the starter and Bohannon has transferred out to South Florida. So that's a sneaky, interesting game. I didn't go with that game. Obviously, because I don't believe that either one of those teams, again, are really like true playoff contenders, but it's just one to kind of keep in your back pocket and, and watch a little bit more closely than maybe you otherwise would. But again, it's obvious it's Bam at Texas. Bama doesn't really have many losable games on their schedule, if you want me to be entirely honest. I'm not saying they cannot lose. Of course they can lose. We saw them lose last year at, in College Station against Texas A&M. There are some losable games on the schedule. I think at Arkansas is a losable game. I might give you a little little teaser here. That game might be on my upset alert episode that we're going to do in a couple of weeks. That's a tricky game for, for Alabama. They're better. They should win that game, but don't count Arkansas out. At Tennessee, Bama's better, should win, but is it losable? Maybe. Sure, I guess. At Ole Miss, same thing here. Bama should win that game, but is it losable? Sure, we've seen that story before. It's possible. Maybe AM at home, but I mean, I think Alabama is the clear favorite in that game, and the odds makers tell you that right now with these early lines, these preseason lines. And I, I guess I would throw Texas in there as a possible losable game. But again, I don't expect Alabama to lose any of those games. I just think those are the games on the schedule that could potentially be quote unquote losable. 
And if Bama somehow does end up losing this game, which again, let me make clear, I'm not predicting that. I do not expect that to happen. I expect Bama to roll in this game. But let's just say for argument's sake, if they do somehow end up losing in Austin, well, that changes the entire national calculus, not just for Alabama, but for college football in general, because there would be no, for Bama, there would be no margin for error in SEC play. If they happen to drop one of those games at Arkansas, at Tennessee, at Ole Miss, maybe A&M at home, or even Georgia, whoever it is, probably Georgia, right? And the SEC championship game, well, Alabama's out if they lose to A&M. So that changes the national calculus entirely. So if that happens, could it open the door for Utah or maybe a one-loss Michigan? Let's say Michigan runs through the regular season schedule, goes into the last week of the season at Ohio State undefeated, and they drop that game. And they're sitting there at 11-1 and with that only loss being to Ohio State, who's probably going to be either number one or two in the country. In that scenario, does it open the door for a team like that? Does it potentially open the door for a team like Houston if they're able to run the table and get through the regular season undefeated, win the conference title game, and go into the college football playoff selection Sunday at 13-0? Does it open the door for a team like that? Probably not, but you don't know. It just kind of changes the calculus nationally very early in the season if Texas does some way, somehow find a way to pull this upset. And if Texas does win... Well, I think they immediately become the Big 12 favorites. I think they find themselves in the thick of the playoff conversation immediately. Again, changing the entire playoff calculus in week two of the regular season. Now, obviously, the question becomes, can Texas do it? Can they pull off this massive upset? I mean, think about the setting, guys. I mean, the fans in Texas, they're going to be fired up, obviously. But everyone is when, when Alabama comes to town. Texas is loaded with skill talent, but this is the first test for new quarterback Quinn Ewers, and I'm expecting him to win that job. I know it's not a done deal. He hasn't been announced as the starter. Hudson Card still in that competition, but I do expect it to be Quinn Ewers based on everything that you're hearing, and I expect Ewers to be a really good player at some point in his Texas career. The problem for Texas in this game is I would not put my money on him being that guy in this game because it's soon man it's really really early for viewers i mean this this will be his first like real true test at the college level against alabama and i know it's at home but come on man is he ready for that i personally would not put my money on that but if he is the guy that every texas fan thinks he's gonna be this early in the season if he's ready to be that guy this early well, they certainly got a shot because they have the skill talent to make it interesting if Ewers is already ready to be that guy. Again, I just wouldn't count on that. Possible, sure, just wouldn't count on it. Because you think about the skill talent around him. Xavier Worthy is a true freshman last year, kind of exploded onto this scene, was fantastic out wide. Isaiah Nayer coming in from Wyoming is a guy that has a lot of talent receiver. You add him there with Jordan Whittington and Xavier Worthy. You got Bijan Robinson, who might be the most talented running back in the country. In the backfield, you got Roshan Johnson kind of backing him up there. He was really talented in his own right. Jaleel Billingsley coming over from Alabama as tight end. Now, I have questions about how good of a player Billingsley actually is, but he's really athletic. He's got a lot of talent. He just can't seem to actually figure it out on the field. So if Ewers is ready to be that guy that early in the season, sure, it's it's, it's certainly possible. I wouldn't bet on it, but it's possible. But he, I think there's two big problems for Texas in this game. You're going to kind of handicap this game and, and look at this matchup early on here in, in mid-July. Two big problems for Texas in this game. Number one, containing the Alabama pass rush. 
You got Will Anderson. We all know that. I think the Heisman Trophy was was his to win last year. I think he should have won. I think he was the best player in the country, the most productive player, the most outstanding player, but obviously we know it's a quarterback award, so he did not win it. That's fine. Still a fantastic player, and he is back again. You've got Dallas Turner, who might have, honestly, more of an upside as a pass rusher than even Will Anderson. He's not there yet. Like, don't get me wrong. I'm not trying to get ahead of myself, but like long-term upside, I don't think that's crazy to say. And then you have Chris Braswell, who no one really talks about, but he's a damn good pass rusher in his own right. I mean, they legitimately have a three-headed pass rushing monster off the edge. And then you're looking at this Texas offensive line. I mean, guys, this is a horrible matchup. Texas is going to be starting at least two true freshmen. Now, their freshman incoming offensive line class is one of the best classes that we've seen on the offensive line in a while. I mean, it's the best offensive line class coming to college this year, no doubt about it. They got a bunch of big time players, but they're going to have to start at least two true freshmen, maybe three. We'll see how it plays out, but at least two is what looks likely right now. And this is week two against that Alabama defense and those dynamic relentless Alabama pass rushers. And at least one of those two true freshmen is going to be playing left tackle. It's probably going to end up being Devin Campbell. That's kind of what the the word is coming out of of Austin right now, who was the number 10 player in the country last year, a five-star offensive lineman. I'm sure he's going to be a great player. But week two, the second game of his college career, going against Will Anderson, Dallas Turner, Chris Braswell, that is a matchup nightmare for Texas. So what, what is Texas going to have to do? Well, they're going to have to get the ball out of viewers' hands very quickly. And I think their best chance in this game is to run right at Alabama. I think Alabama's good in the middle of their defense, but I do not think that they are special. DJ Dale, Byron Young, those guys are fine. Tim Smith is a guy I was expecting to take a big jump last year, and you never really saw that from him. They're good. They're not bad players, but they haven't been game-changing, difference-maker type players. I can say the same thing about Henry Toe Toe. There's a lot of hype about him coming over from Tennessee last year. He was fine last year. He was okay. He was not a five-star player. He was not. It's just that simple. He was not that guy for Alabama last year. If you think so, you're just buying the hype based on the name. Go watch the tape. He was not that guy for them last year. Maybe he will be this year. I don't know. But there's a reason he came back because the NFL scouts tell him the same thing. Hey, dude, you weren't that guy last year. Go be that guy. So I would try my luck and run right at them. And again, you still got two true freshmen on the offensive line. So it's still going to be an uphill battle. You're probably not going to have a ton of success doing that, but you got Bijan Robinson. And I just, I think you have to take their pass rushers out of the game as much as possible. But the offensive line against those pass rushers is certainly problem number one for Texas in this matchup. And then problem number two is that, I mean, the Texas defense guys last year, I know it's last year, but last year they could not stop a wet sneeze. In Alabama, we know what their offense was last year. It was one of the most productive and one of the most efficient offenses in all of college football. And that's not really going to change that much this year. I know you lose John Mechie. I know you lose Jamison Williams. But it's just a machine for Alabama. The key piece they have coming back, obviously, is the Heisman Trophy winner. We all know that. Bryce Young is back. Throw in Jameer Gibbs. They should be healthy on the offensive line at least early in the season. And I just have a hard time believing that this Texas defense, which wasn't that good last year, is going, actually, that's not even doing justice to it. They were bad last year. I have a hard time believing they're going to turn it all around in one year and be able to stop this high-powered Bama offense in week two. I just have a hard time believing that. So the road atmosphere certainly will be a challenge for Alabama. I think they're getting a break here that it's a noon game, a Fox big noon kickoff and not a night game. And look, it's old hat for Bama. Everywhere Bama goes, they get a huge crowd on the road. That's just what happens. That's what happens for Bama. That's not going to be new to them. 
And the Bama roster is fully built out. Texas is maybe halfway there. They're on their way, but they don't have a fully built out roster yet. Alabama has the clear town edge and the clear depth edge. And when it's that hot, like it's going to be in Austin in early September at noon, I think depth does matter. So for me, I just can't reasonably bet on Quinn Ewers over Bryce Young at this point. I think Texas has great skill talent, but you know what? So does Alabama. And the bottom line is, at the end of the day, Bama is just far superior on the line of scrimmage. They have more overall talent, more depth, and there's really no reason they should lose this game, but it's still an important game because if Texas finds a way to maybe some way possibly pull this upset, it changes the entire national calculus. Okay, let's move on to week three. This is another week where I think the most important game was pretty obvious to me. I did not have to put a lot of thought into this one. It's pretty clearly Miami at Texas A&M in week three. I think there were a couple other games to consider. My honorable mention list was Georgia at South Carolina. There are some national talking heads already predicting the Gamecocks to beat Georgia at home week three, just like they were in 2018. We'll see how that plays out. But if South Carolina does somehow pull that upset, obviously that's another game that could completely change the national playoff calculus. And you got BYU at Oregon. It's a very interesting game. It's another chance for a Pac-12 team in Oregon to get a nice non-conference win. And again, I believe the Pac-12 has got to win some of these games, a lot of these games, if they want to get a team in the college football playoff. It's another chance for BYU to knock off a Power 5 team and keep those playoff hopes live. I don't think BYU is a true playoff contender. I don't think they're quite at that level, but they are a damn good team, and I think that they're going to give these Power 5 teams a lot of trouble throughout the season. But for me, I think it's pretty clear it's Miami at Texas A&M in week three. Honestly, I think that this is an under-the-radar massive game in 2022. Let me explain why. I think this game has potential playoff implications for both teams. You know, I told you guys last week on the show that I think Miami is going to be one of those teams that takes a huge step forward in 2022. They were 7-5 last year, which was fine-ish, respectable, wasn't good enough to keep their coach around. Manny Diaz is gone. But I think Miami has a chance to go from 7-5 to ACC champion. Now, I wouldn't predict that. I would put both Clemson and NC State ahead of Miami right now in my ACC power rankings. But there's not a huge gap there. And the reason there's not a huge gap there, as I said last week, if you listen to that episode, is Tyler Van Dyke. That dude is the truth at quarterback. And I think this is a really important game for Miami, more so for Miami than Texas A&M, but I think it's important for both teams. I just think it's more important for Miami because if Miami wins this game, it gets real interesting real quick because there's not a ton of games that I would handicap Miami as underdogs sitting here July 19th in the preseason. This is one of them. Maybe the only other game I'm looking at the schedule right now that I would say they'll probably be an underdog in is at Clemson. Other than that, I think they should be favored in every other game. We'll see how the season goes. Injuries can happen, all that, of course. But right now, assuming everyone stays healthy, I think Miami will probably only be an underdog in two of their games, and this is one of them. And if Miami wins, their playoff hopes all of a sudden become very real. It also gives them some margin for error in the ACC. If they lose this game, then they could potentially lose to North Carolina in the regular season or lose to Clemson on the road as long as they redeem themselves in the ACC championship game and still potentially find themselves in the college football playoff. Because when you play a non-conference game like this, when you're Miami, 
and you're already a name program, haven't been great recently, but you're still a name program, an established brand. And if you challenge yourself in a game like this and you play well, even if you drop it, but you go on and win the ACC, you are still in the playoff conversation. There's no guarantee you're going to get in there. Now, if it's a one-loss Miami team, I think they're in, certainly. If it's a two-loss team, probably not. It would take some chaos around the country for that to happen. But if they can find a way to win this football game, even if they lose at Clemson in the regular season, that's their only loss in the regular season, which I don't think is out of the question. Like If they win this game, I certainly don't think it's out of the question to say they can go the rest of the season and only lose to Clemson. And then they can play Clemson potentially again or NC State in a neutral site venue in the ACC championship game. Miami could absolutely win that game. And in that scenario, if they end up 12-1, and one, which might not be very likely, but I think it's possible, in that scenario, they're absolutely in the playoff. There's no doubt when one of those wins on your schedule is at Texas A&M. And then on the flip side, if Texas A&M happens to win this game, which I think right now is what I would predict, or I think most people would predict that to happen, that gives them a really nice chip in their pocket come Selection Sunday. Now, A&M, the reason this I don't think is as important of a game for A&M as it is for Miami well, A&M just has a much tougher schedule than the Canes do. It's just that simple. Like winning this game would be really big for Texas A&M, but they still got to play Arkansas. They still got to play Alabama. They've still got to play Florida. They still got to play LSU. They still got to play Ole Miss. They have a lot of other games going to be very difficult for them to win on their schedule. But I would still argue outside of Alabama, A&M would be more talented than everyone else that they will play. So if A&M wins this game, and let's say they happen to lose to Bama, which I think is likely at this point, they lose to Bama on the road, but they run the table outside of that and they end up 11-1 in the regular season, this win against Miami in the non-conference would look big on the resume and give them a fighting chance to sneak in the back door of the college playoff. They would certainly still need some help, but they would at least have some life, have some potential hope for that to happen. And I know most people out there, when you're going through the helmet schedule, and you're marking the wins and the losses for each team, you're kind of chalking this up as a win for AM, right? Because it's in College Station. AM's more talented. They've been recruiting really well. They beat Alabama last year. Miami's recruiting well, but they're not there yet. You're kind of just chalking this up as a win for AM. And I get that. I did that too when I went through the schedule. But the more I think about it, like, are we so sure about that? That's just an automatic win for AM? Yeah, I know they beat Bama last year, but I actually just rewatched that game on Saturday and it truly took Bama playing the worst game I think I've seen them play since probably 2007, like Nick Saban's first year, for AM to get that win. Like Bama played horribly in that game, fumbling handoffs, throwing an uncharacteristic interception in the end zone, giving up kickoff returns for touchdowns, blowing coverages all over the field. It was just such an uncharacteristic overall performance from Alabama. And it took that for AM to barely win that game. Now, give AM credit. They won the game. They had enough talent to get it done. But Alabama played really, really poorly in that game. So there's some context there. And Kyle Field, I mean, yeah, it's a huge stadium, but it's not really necessarily the house of horrors that people make it out to be. At least it hasn't played out that way since they've been in the SEC. AM has improved their play under Jimbo Fisher as of late. So it's become more of a difficult place to play because AM is just better. But I mean, they lost to Mississippi State at home last year, guys. Mississippi State was good, but I mean, come on. They lost to Mississippi State at home. So it's not unprecedented for AM to lose games at home to teams that are honestly pretty significantly less talented than what this Miami team is going to be. 
I would definitely give AM the overall talent edge. They're better on defense. They're better on the offensive line. They're better running back. They're better at receiver with Anaya Smith. But again, one place that AM is unequivocally not better is the quarterback position, which just so happens to be the most important position on the field. Miami has proven elite production there with Tyler Van Dyke. Over the last six weeks of last season, this guy was averaging nearly 350 yards passing a game. He was one of the like three or four best quarterbacks in the entire country the last half of last season, and he did that as a freshman. He is the proven entity here in this game at quarterback. For AM, it's a big old fat mystery. We know who Max Johnson is if he ends up being the guy. He's a good, solid quarterback. Is he a game changer? We have certainly not seen that through his first two years at the college level. Haynes King, big mystery. Started the first game and a half last year, got knocked out in week two against Colorado, didn't play the rest of the year. He was the guy to start the season, but who is he? We don't know. We don't know what kind of player he is at the college level. And then Connor Wegman, the, the true freshman, have absolutely no idea. We know he's a five-star. We know he's highly touted, but is he going to be ready to beat a team like Miami? I know it's at home, but that early in the season, in this true freshman year, if he is indeed going to be the guy to start the season, which I think is unlikely, I think whoever it is for AM, Miami clearly has the quarterback advantage in this matchup. And Van Dyke has that swagger, guys. He has that Miami swagger. You got to give the guy credit. And it's not like he doesn't have a big time road win on his resume already. They went into Pitt last year, guys, the ACC championship winning Pitt team. They went into Pitt and beat them late last season. Miami absolutely has it in them to pull this upset. I would pick AM to win this game. I really would right now based off the town edge. I think I said they're better on defense, offensive line, running back receiver. They're better pretty much everywhere except quarterback. But that quarterback, Tyler Van Dyke, I think he does give Miami a chance to potentially pull this upset. It's a late kickoff, 9 p.m. Eastern time, week three. I'm going to be glued to this game. I'm probably going to stay up late to watch it. I'm probably going to try to, I'm going to fall asleep. I'm going to wake up and finish it. That's what's going to happen. But I am very excited for this game. I think this is the most important game of week three. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. And moving into the final weekend of September, this was another tough one for me because honestly, this is the first kind of down weekend of the college football season where there's not a ton of big time matchups. And there were a couple that I considered here. The honorable mention games were Arkansas at AM and then Wisconsin at Ohio State. I think you can certainly make an argument for Wisconsin at Ohio State. And honestly, I had that game initially. I rethought it and moved that one to the honorable mention slot. And I actually went with Kansas State at Oklahoma. And I know a lot of you are going to disagree with this one, just like you disagree with Utah at Florida week one. 
The conventional wisdom would certainly say go with Wisconsin at Ohio State as the most important game of week four when you're looking at that entire slate of games. But I'm going to go a little bit of a different route. And partly this is because I'm trying to spread the love. I'm not going to lie to you. I'm trying to spread the love to some different teams out there and talk about some different programs. And Ohio State will get plenty of love as we make our way through the rest of the week's through the college football season. We'll talk about them quite a few times. That's part of it, but really more than anything, mainly, I think this game, Kansas State at Oklahoma, will be more competitive and will therefore have more legitimate conference title ramifications. The fact is, I just simply don't think Wisconsin has a chance to beat Ohio State in the horseshoe. I just do not think that's going to happen. There's just way too much of a talent disadvantage in that game for them to go into Columbus and win that football game. I don't even really want to talk about that game because it's just boring to me because there's just no chance that Ohio State's going to lose that game. I know you never say never in college football, but come on, man. Like, it's just not going to happen. But Kansas State, I think, is a really interesting team going into 2022. I think they're a real threat to sneak up in the Big 12. I really do. Deuce Vaughn, if you haven't paid attention, pay attention. He is one of the best, if not the best, running backs in the country. Over 1,700 yards last year. They have two leading wide receivers returning, and they're both dynamic talents in Malik Knowles and Phillip Brooks. They're both great receivers. They're also both fantastic in special teams. I think Knowles took two touchdowns back in the kick return game last year. Brooks is a great punt returner, and they add Adrian Martinez to the offense at quarterback which is very interesting to me. Now, we know Adrian Martinez from Nebraska as the guy that just consistently committed catastrophic turnovers and essentially created ways for Nebraska to lose football games. I mean, it was stunning how many ways they could find to lose football games. But when you look back at the season and you look at Martinez's numbers, he was productive. That's the thing. He was productive. He was good. He just kept killing his team with these random, just insane turnovers. And I know sitting here and just saying, hey man, if you could just stop those cash over turnovers, that's still a lot to ask, but you have to wonder how much of that was due to just like the curse of Nebraska maybe, and the, the Scott Frost curse, I don't know. I don't know how to put it. It was just a weird situation. From all accounts, he's a really good guy. He works hard, has been a good leader in the locker room. The coaches in Nebraska liked him. He just needed a change of scenery, and you wonder how much a change of scenery in a different style of offense will be able to help him. Will we see a different version of Adrian Martinez? Because if he can just find a way to cut back on those turnovers, I'm not saying even eliminate them entirely, but just cut back on them, Kansas State has a chance to be a really sneaky good football team in the Big 12 because they have a lot of really nice pieces around him offensively. This is year four of Chris Kleeman at, at Kansas State. They were eight and five last year. They gave Oklahoma a scare last year. They lost that game 37-31, put a scare into the Sooners last year. Defensively, they look really strong in the front seven. They returned Felix and Aduke Uzama, who had 11 sacks last year, was their leading sack man off the edge. Uh, Nate Matlack, they get back as a sophomore, who was really good last year as a freshman, was really promising. They get their leading tackler, Daniel Green, at linebacker back again. They have some issues in the secondary, which gets Oklahoma with the team with Dylan Gabriel and Jeff Lebby run the offense now. That's not something that makes you feel too confident, but if they can find a way to pressure Gabriel, who's not as mobile as guys that you've seen in the past Oklahoma, like Kyler Murray and Caleb Williams last year, I think Kansas State has a chance to win this game. Oklahoma's still the more talented team. Don't get me wrong. They are. It's Oklahoma. We know that. They're always going to be more talented than Kansas State when you look at the 1 through 85 roster, but there's just so much turnover 
on this Oklahoma team this year. There's so many key playmakers gone. Caleb Williams, gone. Kennedy Brooks, leading rusher, gone. Hazelwood, gone. Mario Williams, gone. Mike Woods, gone. And this game is in Norman, so I still give Oklahoma the edge. If this game was in Manhattan, in the Little Apple, I mean, this game might be at the very top of my upset special list that we're going to do in a couple of weeks, but it's not. It's in Norman, it's in Oklahoma, and uh, that makes it tougher, obviously. So I still give Oklahoma the edge. It's at home. They have more talent. Give them the edge. But I just don't think it's a clear-cut edge. I do think Oklahoma is going to need to make some serious improvements on defense. They only are returning three stars from last year. They weren't good on defense last year. Have a brand new system this year. They're bringing in Ted Roof as defensive coordinator. And look, I know Brent Venables is a defensive guy, and I'm sure he's going to be heavily involved with the defense this year. But Ted Roof, man, I don't know. Man, he's He's been okay as a defensive coordinator. I thought that was a really interesting hire. I think this game could end up being a shootout, but it's important for both teams. If Kansas State can find a way to win this game on the road, they all of a sudden become a very legitimate threat to make it to the Big 12 title game. And then if Oklahoma wins this game, which again, I think they should, they should be the team that's favoring this game. They should win this football game. And if they hold serve and avoid a very possible upset spot, that just certainly keeps them alive, not just for the Big 12 title game, but also for more, for more of a prize for that college football playoff spot. So those are the four most important games of the month of September, at least how I see it. Week one, we've got Utah at Florida. Week two, Bama at Texas. Week three, Miami at Texas A&M. And then week four, in the first kind of down week of the college football season, I'm going with Kansas State at Oklahoma with some Big 12 title implications, potentially. I will continue to add on that list and make my way through the 2022 schedule into October, into November, over the next couple of weeks. But for the last part of this episode, I want to do some more blind college football resumes for you. I think we did this. It was either early last week or late the first week of the show. I can't remember. One of the first couple episodes, we did some blind college football resumes at the end of the show, and we had a lot of fun with that. I put it out on social media to let you guys guess, and we're going to do that again. But uh, I want to go ahead and get to this. Chances are, if you follow me on Twitter, which is at NoGradPod, if you don't follow, go ahead and follow now. You get some good content there as well, in addition to what we give you guys here on the podcast. But I put these numbers out on social media and let you guys guess as to who they might be. But let's go ahead and I'll give you the numbers one more time, especially for those of you who have not seen it on social media. And then I will reveal the teams and we'll talk a little bit about it. Okay. So team A. S&P plus offense for Team A in 2021 was 28th nationally. S&P plus defense for Team A was 34th nationally. The scoring margin was plus 3.2 points, meaning they outscored their opponents by an average of 3.2 points per game. Their yardage margin was plus 1254, which means they outgained their opponents by a total of 1,254 yards in the year. That's pretty damn good. Turnover margin, though, was minus two, which was good for 78th nationally, and this is really where they fell off. Field goal kicking percentage was 124th nationally at 56%. There's a reason I included field goal kicking percentage in this blind resume. We'll get to that when I reveal the names. So that's Team A. Again, S&P Plus offense, 28th. S&P Plus defense, 34th. Scoring margin, plus 3.2 points. Yardage margin, plus 1254 Turnover margin, minus two, which is 78th nationally, and field goal kicking percentage, 124th nationally at 56%. 
Team B, S&P Plus offense, 7th nationally. S&P Plus defense, 47th nationally. So better offensively, but not as good defensively as Team A. Their scoring margin was plus 10.2. Team B's yardage margins, plus 685. So they outscored their opponents by an extra touchdown than Team A, but kind of got doubled up in the yardage margin. Turnover margin, plus three, which was 31st nationally. Field goal kicking percentage, 62nd nationally at 75%. Team C, their S&P plus offense was 35th nationally. So the lowest of all the teams that we've seen in this blind resume. Their S&P plus defense, though, was the best at 7th nationally. Their scoring differential was also the best at plus 13.4 points. Their yardage margin was plus 769, so in the middle of these three teams. Their turnover margin was minus one, which was 72nd nationally, and their field goal kicking percentage was 49th nationally at 78.6%. So think about that for a second. As you kind of were listening to me read through those numbers, I know there's a lot of numbers there, but which one of those teams off the top of your head would you project that A, had the better record last year, and B, would be projected to win the most games of those three teams heading into this new 2022 football season. There's no right or wrong answer here. I'm going to let you digest this for a second. No right or wrong answer. I think there are reasons to pick any of these three teams. If you look at Team A, they had the highest yardage margin. So they outgained their opponents by almost double what both Team B and Team C outgained their opponents on the season. But they were only plus 3.2 points per game, which was a full touchdown behind Team B and 10 points behind Team C. And then Team C had the best scoring margin and the best defense of the three teams, but also had the worst offense of the three. While Team B had by far the best offense, seventh S&P plus offense compared to 28th for Team A and 35th for Team C, but had the worst defense and was the lowest in their yardage margin. So think about that for a second. You ready? You ready for me to reveal these teams? All right, let's do it. Team A was the Mississippi State Bulldogs from 2021. Team B was the Tennessee Volunteers. And Team C was the Texas A&M Aggies. And yes, I did have an agenda in picking these three teams. I wanted to try to make a point in an interesting way. And the point I'm trying to make here is not that Mississippi State is better than Texas A&M or Tennessee or that they will be better at the end of the year than both those teams and that they're going to have a better record. That's not what I'm trying to suggest. All I'm trying to do is pose a question here. If you look at the preseason win totals and the general expectations and the narratives around these three teams heading into 2022... Mississippi State is a distant third in this conversation, if they're even in the conversation at all. People are talking about how talented Texas A&M is and this number one recruiting class, potentially the best recruiting class of all time on paper and how good they're going to be moving in the future. Is is Tennessee back? Are they ready to challenge Georgia? They might clearly be the number two team in the East. They're really making waves in recruiting right now. Josh Heupel is getting this program back on track. The Tennessee fans are all excited. And then there's Mississippi State. Like, yeah, they're kind of there. If you look at the win totals, I mean, A&M's win total is at nine, which I think is very fair. Tennessee's win total in most places is at eight, eight and a half, somewhere around there. I think you might find it seven and a half somewhere, but most places have it right around eight, which I think is fair for Tennessee. 
But then you add Mississippi State, and their win total on most sports books is at six and a half. And I find the disparity in how these three teams are viewed to be very interesting. Because if you look at it based off production last year, Mississippi State was every bit as productive and good as both Tennessee and Texas A&M. Now, their record was not as good as Tennessee because they played in the SEC West and had a more difficult schedule. They also had a game flout stolen from them at Memphis. That game, as far as I'm concerned, Mississippi State won that game. It wasn't just one, it wasn't two, it was like three or four, just absolutely mind-blowingly horrific calls that cost them that game. They had Arkansas beat at Arkansas, but they missed about three or four easy field goals. Any one of them would have won the game. In fact, it got so bad for that game that Mike Leach, that's why I included the field goal kicking percentage in this, because... They outgained both Tennessee and AM in their yardage margin. They were more productive than both Tennessee and AM by pretty considerable margins last year, plus 1254 compared to plus 685 for Tennessee. Almost double Tennessee up. Didn't quite double up AM, but not that far away from it, plus 769 for AM. But they turned the ball over too much, and their field goal kicking absolutely cost them games last year. Case in point being that Arkansas game, they held open tryouts for kickers after that game. That's how bad it got for Mississippi State last year. Both those guys are gone this year. They're not going to have those field goal kicking issues. Turnover margin is largely the product of luck. And usually when you have a lower turnover margin one year, it balances back in your favor the next year and you're going to move up the rankings there. And I expect that to be the case for Mississippi State and really both them and AM this year. But I just find it to be interesting. I'm not saying Mississippi State is better than AM, although they did also, by the way, beat Texas AM in College Station last year. They are 20th nationally in SP plus returning production. So Bill Conley's returning production numbers, which actually puts them as one of seven teams that finished 2021 inside the S&P Plus Top 50 and enter 2022 in the top 30 in returning production. They're in there with NC State, BYU, SMU, Fresno State, Ohio State, and Iowa. Mississippi State, that's that's something to build off of, right? And especially when some of those returning starters are your three-year starter at quarterback and Will Rogers, who now knows that Mike Leach air race system inside now. You have Austin Williams, Jaden Wally coming back at receiver. I like Jameer Calvin coming back. You get Jaquavius Marks back at running back, who's a big part. Of, obviously, they don't run the ball that much, but actually a big part of the passing game. They get eight starters back on defense, including guys like Tyrus Weed and really their entire defensive line. It's now year three of the Mike Leach system. You got to think they have this offense down by now. He's been able to recruit more to his system. I think Mississippi State is a sneaky good football team in the SEC West. The problem for Mississippi State, and this is probably the reason why I don't think they're getting as much love as they deserve, the schedule is brutal. The schedule is very, very tough. They go to Arizona, which they should win, but Memphis and at Arizona to open the season. Then at LSU, you got Texas A&M, Arkansas, get both those games at home, which should hopefully help. But then you've got, obviously, at Alabama, got at Kentucky. They also draw Georgia. You get at Kentucky and then Georgia at home in cross-divisional play in the SEC. They're at Ole Miss at the end of the year. It's just a tough schedule. So I'm fine if you guys out there or the national media want to see here and say that Texas A&M and Tennessee will be better than Mississippi State this year, and they'll end up having a better record. They'll, both those teams will probably end up having a better record than Mississippi State this year. I think that's likely. But I'm just not so sure there's that big of a gap between these three teams. I'm really not. Last year, there was not that big of a gap. The problem for Mississippi State was last year. They went 7-6. and six. They got a couple, they had at least one game stolen from them. By the way, they did beat NC State last year. That's another big one. They beat NC State last year. They won at Texas A&M. They beat Kentucky last year. Mississippi State was legitimately a good football team 
that found some ways to lose games. They also had that massive comeback on the road at Auburn. I won a ton of money that game. I actually had them to win straight up on the money line to pull the upset at Auburn. It looked really, really bleak for me early in that game. And then I watched that thing transpire. I was actually walking from the bar to the stadium in Knoxville, Tennessee to go watch Georgia play Tennessee and was watching into that game. And I won a big chunk of change in that game. I took a flyer on that one. And man, that one, that one worked out. But then, of course, they lost to Alabama. They knew that was going to happen. They lost to LSU at home, which, man, that was a game. They lost by three in that game. Shouldn't have lost that game. They lost at Arkansas by a field goal. Again, God, they, they beat Arkansas up and down the field in that game, and they blew it because they simply could not make a field goal. The Memphis game was stolen from them. Yeah, they were 7-6. and six. They lost to Texas Tech. They got blown out by Texas Tech in the bowl game. But they easily could have been, I don't know, man, like a – a nine and three team in the regular season last year. They ended up being seven and five in the regular season, so no one's talking about them. But if you really go back and look at the numbers objectively, like I tried to do with those blind resumes, they were every bit as good, if not better, at least arguably better than both Tennessee and AM were from a statistical production standpoint. Now, that might not mean anything for this year because that was last year, but they do have a lot of returning production, 20th nationally in S&P Plus returning production. So I know the win total is six and a half, which is far lower than both Tennessee and AM this season. But just don't be surprised. That's all I'm saying. Don't be surprised if you look up at the end of the year and Mississippi State found a way to end up 9-3 and and blew past that 6.5 win total. Just saying, just saying. And remember, you heard it here first. But all right, guys, that does it for me today here on this episode of Never Graduate. Again, thank you guys. Thank you so much for being here and enjoying some hardcore college football talk with me. I had a hell of a time sitting here talking ball today, and I hope you had just as good of a time sitting here and listening to it. So thank you guys again. I appreciate it. Five-star ratings reviews are a huge help if you enjoyed what you heard today. I would greatly appreciate that. Follow the podcast on Twitter. It's at NoGradPod. Don't be a stranger. Like, retweet, comment. Spread the word to friends and family. But more than anything, make sure to check back later this week for the next edition of the Never Graduate College Sports Podcast. I'm Tyler, and I will see you guys next time.